You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Welcome everyone again to the Grace Saves All podcast. Today we welcome Brian Zahn to the podcast. Brian became a committed Christian during the 70s Jesus movement. He was a high school Jesus freak who by the age of 22 had founded a church. At one point during the 1990s, Brian's Word of Life Church was dubbed one of the 20 fastest growing churches in America. But by 2003, in his mid-40s, Brian found himself deconstructing and reconstructing his faith. The evangelical, charismatic, religious right-dominated Christian world in which he was living had worn thin. He started reading early church fathers such as Clement, Polycarp, Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, and Maximus the Confessor. Among modern Christian scholars, Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, proved to be a gateway for Brian to a more philosophically and theologically coherent faith. Directly or indirectly reading, Dallas Willard led Brian to other modern scholars such as N.T. Wright, Walter Brueggemann, Eugene Peterson, Frederick Buechner, Stanley Hauerwas, John Howard Yoder, Rene Girard, Miroslav Wolf, Karl Barth, Hans Urs von Balthasar, David Bentley Hart, Wendell Berry, Scott McKnight, Thomas Merton, and Richard Rohr. Brian has written openly about his entire spiritual journey in a number of books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Postcards from Babylon, Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, The Unvarnished Jesus, and Beauty Will Save the World. You can find out more about Brian at brianzon.com. So welcome, Brian, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Well, thank you, David. My, that was such a thorough introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, your story is a is a very interesting one, and you've 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 done a lot of podcasts and told a lot of people about it. Um, why don't you just give us just a kind of a, a brief sense of how you've moved away from an angry, vengeful, and retributive God who e- eternally torments all non Christians in hell to this God who is. Um, a, a God of complete and complete and total love. So just just sketch that out a little bit for those I who might not know. It's, you know, I don't know if I have an exact story. Uh, you touched on how at midlife I began to just rethink Christian faith. I wouldn't describe it as a crisis of faith regarding Christ. I would just say I realized that the Jesus that I had committed my life to deserved a better faith than what I saw in my contemporary Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that led me on a great search that involved many things, uh, learning how to pray well, uh, also a very ambitious reading program. You touched on that in the introduction. And I say a program, I mean, it wasn't there was no system to it. No one gave me an assignment. It's just that one thing led to another. You understand what I'm saying? You just start somewhere and, and you read a theological work and it points you to another one and to another one and to another one. And before I really knew it, I had just read myself into a, I guess I would say very different. I think maybe the the orthodox essentials 
small mm-hmm. role, orthodox essentials remained unaltered, but just a profoundly different way of thinking about God mm-hmm. and understanding the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, I guess I was a product in some ways of um, penal substitutionary atonement theory, that is, as far as my possibly my conversion, but at least as the way I understood what it means to be saved and how we're saved and all that. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that theory, and the, the problems are legion, <laughs> many problems, mm-hmm. um, and I could go on and on about that. I don't think that's really what we want to do on this podcast. Um, but part of the problem, one of the many problems, is that um, you, you see a great difference between the Son of God, or say, say God the Son and God the Father, uh, and in effect, what you have in penal substitutionary atonement theory, as you know, initially sent forth by Anselm and then given more of its final form by Calvin, mm-hmm. is you end up with Jesus saving you from God, and that primarily salvation is to be saved from God. And I began to see the problems with that kind of thinking that 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 runs into all kinds of theological cul-de-sacs and dead ends, and it doesn't work. And so as I began the process of rethinking atonement theory, um, it eventually led to the point where I understood that there is only one perfect theology, and that is Jesus Christ. Christ himself is the one and only perfect revelation of who God is. And so mm-hmm. the pithy little axiom that I give quite often is that God is like Jesus. God right. has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but right. now we do. And so um, I began to see, okay, Jesus is not saving us from God. Jesus is revealing God as Savior. And so then I began to understand that Jesus was not um, acting as an agent of change upon the Father. The Father is immutable. Again, I'm orthodox. Mm -hmm. Um, Jesus does not act as an agent of change upon the Father, but Jesus is the perfect revelation of who the Father is and always has been, so that when the Son prays from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is not an effort to change the Father. In fact, right. we're told repeatedly in the gospel that that Jesus only does what he sees the Father do. He only right. says what the Father says. To see Jesus is to see the Father. So in praying, Father, forgive them, the Son is not changing the Father, but revealing the Father. And so I would say that was maybe the theological um, journey that led me to where I'm at today, where I you know, speak of sinners in the hands of a loving God instead of yeah. sinners in the hands yeah. of an angry God. Well, I think there's probably a lot of us that are that are on that journey. You you started you started more in the evangelical conservative uh, wing of things. I'm I'm a uh, I'm a minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and so mm-hmm. I was more in sort of the already kind of in the. Uh, uh, the idea of thinking of God as completely loving, but but in my process, I kept going further and further with it. I would tell people that grace was 
you know, most of my theology. And then, then I would say it was nearly all of my theology. And then finally it just became all of my theology. I just, I just, you know what, it's just all grace. And, uh, and I started reading David Bentley Hart and, uh, Thomas Talbot, uh, Robin Perry, Alaria Ramelli, Peter Hyatt started going to conferences. And I just, the more I, in my process, I finally got to the point where, uh, a theology of universal restoration or universal salvation or Christian universalism, however you put that, would really help me to understand what it meant to be a, a child in the hands of a loving God. And that, um, but what happened to me was I, I knew this would happen. When I made that step, my theology all really fit together. But then I had to deal with being called a heretic. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I appreciate about you is that. Uh, you're even though you're not advocating Christian universalism per se, you're you're advocating a very a tremendously uh, loving God, but uh, but you don't. What I like is you you say you know, but Christian universalism is not heretical. Even though I might not be all the way there yet, I understand what they're saying, and it's not heretical. You mentioned orthodox before, so I think it's probably your opinion. Uh, that it's possible to, for somebody could be a Christian universalist and be orthodox, and if that was the way they needed to practice their Christianity, and is that that's what makes them alive spiritually? That, that's that's completely fine. Yes, uh, yes, clearly, um, Christian universalism is certainly not a heresy. My goodness, if if you say so, then you have to you have to brand Gregory of Nyssa as a heretic, and that's going to create problems. Uh, what Christian universalism is, in its patristic form, is a minority position that's always been held by some. Now, when I say a minority position, that's, you know, from the whole grand witness of Christian theology over 2,000 years. Right. Uh, if David Bentley Hart is to be taken as an authority, and I do, uh, he would suggest that there was at least a time in the Byzantine world, the Greek-speaking world, where at least among the active theologians in mm -hmm. uh, in late antiquity, that um, that universalism was in fact the majority position among active theologians, and um, so yeah, I mean I. I mean, I got so many thoughts here, so many things I can say, and we can just take our time and get into them. Um, well, the thing I just appreciated is that is that I like this. Like sometimes somebody will say, "Well, you know, I appreciate that you're a Christian universalist, but boy, that just seems a little bit much." We're saying we we know that God is going to save absolutely everyone, and what about free will, and what about some things like that? And I said, "Well, okay, you know, if um, if." If, if those are some concerns, there's lots of room for some great theology out there. Like, like check out Brian Zond and Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. That's an example of a great theology that comes uh, within within distance of Christian. Brian's not going to be upset if God saves everyone, certainly. No, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for it. I mean, basically where I'm coming from, David, is uh, I am, this is just a personality quirk. But I am loath to accept labels. I, I accept very few. Now, you know, people will apply them except to me. Except for Dylan, except regardless. for as a Dylan, as a Dylan Defoe tag. You'll accept that, right? 
I, I am a D Dylan devotee. I, will, <laughs> I mean, that's just an accurate description. That's for sure. Uh, but Soren Kierkegaard said, when you label me, you negate me. And uh, that is, it's so easy for people to say, oh, he's one of those. And then no further thought or engagement is given. Uh -huh. So I would not, I will say, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. I hold a very robust hope of apocatastasis, that God in Christ will reconcile all things to himself. And I can talk about why I believe that. I don't like the term, I don't like the label uh, universalism or Christian universalism, even though at any given moment I may agree with any particular point you're making, but right. I just, I'm a pastor and I also know how language works. And, you know, David, you're a sophisticated theologian. You're well read. You understand what we're talking about. But the average person, especially the average Christian, hears universalism like this. So Hitler's in his bunker. And he pulls the trigger on his revolver, and the next thing he knows, he's in his heavenly mansion. He's there, you know, in his uh, in his luxury villa, and there's yeah. no accounting, there's no justice, there's no repentance, there's no need for the cross. Jesus is irrelevant, and everything else, nothing matters. There's there's no there's nothing that matters. That in the end, everybody just goes from here to heaven. Now, you don't think anything remotely like that. Neither does Gregory of Neeson, neither did George MacDonald, neither do I. But that there's just too many people that hear it like this. So I just don't traffic in that kind of, that particular label or language. Rather, uh -huh. I just say, well, let's, let's have the conversation about the mercy of God and the love of God and, and, and how this works. Um, and so, so I don't have any particular label. I use the word apocatastasis because no one knows what that means. But then, yeah. I, but then I can show it to them in Acts 3.21, where Peter talks about right. the restoration of all things spoken of by all the prophets. Um, if you get into, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this, for, you know, for the sake of our listeners. I know you know all this. Right. Uh, I mean, Paul's language, especially in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, might lead one to suggest that Paul certainly had uh, a robust hope of universal reconciliation. The way he keeps talking about the, the phrase he uses on pos and pos is all in all, that, that God will be all, Christ will be all in all, that, that, right. that, in, that Christ brings all things into himself. Uh, in Romans, that he has this very tight, not always easy to follow, but it's it's there, this, this long-running argument that is Romans 9, 10, and 11, that whether or not you understand, or you can follow it all, you see how it ends. It's, right. it, the argument ends that God has shut up all in disobedience, that he might be merciful to all. That's the end of the argument, and then the next thing that happens is Paul breaks into a doxology. Right. I sometimes wonder if Romans had ended there. <laughs> if that would have been, you know, because he goes on with all of the, you know, he says, therefore, and then we get in a lot of practical advice that he's given, but his whole theological he argument was really also is, ever the pastor. I mean, yes, yeah. he's a theologian, but he just, his pastoral impulse is so strong. Mm -hmm. You talked about, you know, having a strong hope uh, for all to be saved. And uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar is a, uh, is a theologian that you... Yep. Uh, you really like, and there's a, I've got my copy of his, uh, 
of his book, Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved. I just want to I want to read a little section here. That let, I think, let me just throw this in for our listeners. In that title, Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved, the that all men be saved is in quotation because it is a quotation from Scripture that God does not desire any to perish, but that all shall be saved. And so, okay, go ahead. But that's okay. So he's taking that right out of Scripture. Okay, so here's the here's the quote: All merciful love can thus descend to everyone. We believe that it does so. And now can we assume that there are souls that remain perpetually closed to such love? As a possibility, in principle, this cannot be rejected. In reality, it can become infinitely improbable, precisely through what preparatory grace is capable of effecting in the soul. It can do no more than knock at the door, and there are souls that already open themselves to it upon hearing this unobtrusive call. Others allow it to go unheeded. Then it can steal its way into souls and begin to spread itself out there more and more. The greater the area becomes that grace thus occupies in an illegitimate way, the more improbable it becomes that the soul will remain closed to it. Amen. Uh, I I can sum up uh, Dare We Hope by Balthazar in that he says, Dare we hope? Certainly yes. Dare we say no? And I'm sort of with Balthazar on that. Now, I I understand David Bentley Hart has little toleration for for Balthazar's hesitancy. He just feels like he's just, he should go ahead and take this leap. And even though I really, really, well, I I like both of those theologians. Uh I've read probably everything that Hart has published. I haven't read everything that Balthazar has published because that wouldn't really be possible, I don't think. But but I've read all of Hart's stuff. And I've read, I've read, um, um, What's, what's the name of that book? His his book on Christian universalism. Um, uh, that all shall be saved. That all shall be saved. Yeah, I've read I read it three I've read it three times. I read it in manuscript form before it was published, and then I've read it twice since then. I really like it. the The only quibble I might have with it is, and that other than style, I I personally like. David Bentley Hart style. I laugh yeah. and I get it. Other people are put <laughs> off. I, I, I'm a defender of his. I like his style, even though many don't. Um, there, the one part I might quibble with, although I would not quibble with it with Hart himself, because <laughs> <laughs> demolished or something. But um, there is there is sort of an air in the book, uh, a tone. It almost says it. That, well, you know, if you just weren't so stupid and could read biblical Greek, you would understand that there's clearly no other way of thinking or talking about this other than Christian universalism. Well, I don't claim to be the scholar that Hart is, but I want to say, well, I think you can arrive at a position where you have this very strong, robust hope that God in Christ is able to reconcile all things unto himself. And I have ideas about how that may happen. Right. But to say that there's no other way of interpreting the New Testament, I think that's just a bridge too far. I think, um, I don't think it would be as controversial as it is if that, if it was always that clear. That's the thing about Hart. It, it's, it's, it's the very, it's the very it's the very way in which he takes the stand yeah <laughs> that, that you know that makes it so that makes it so interesting my wife is a phd from history in in history of christianity from university of chicago 
one of the things that I learned is that PhDs are different than pastors. <laughs> PhDs Art would be like the worst pastor ever. Ever, right? And he would agree with that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the the what a PhD does is to make the strongest argument possible. Yeah, I mean, so that's what he's doing. He's making the strongest absolute argument uh, that he can make. And the thing that the, the thing that really uh, that I thought about, I kept thinking about a lot, was that uh, Isaiah forty six ten where I am the one who knows the end from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So if God is light in whom there is no darkness at all, and God brings a creation about in some kind of, in some kind of reality that's prior or above to our space time continuum and knows the end from the beginning, that, that the destiny for any individual uh, rational being that, that a God of pure light, would create would be one in which that being would finally come to understand and know and participate in that love. And so as I began to just think about all that, that became a way for me to hold together not only the problem of hell, but the problem of evil in the world. How do we mm -hmm. deal with something like an Auschwitz or an incredible evil where we say not only was that evil, but a God, an all-knowing, all-powerful God allowed that. And so how does God heal? How does God heal the world from the wounds that God allows and and that's a big part of that. That's a major story in your book. Uh, a young woman had come to you yeah. after having visited Auschwitz. Can you say just tell a little bit about more that? Than once. I tell I tell a, a very particular story about a young woman named Abby. I don't use her name in the book, but who? Yeah, who had? Who, and, and this has happened to me more than once. And I've come to learn it is kind of a phenomenon. That is, Christians of a certain theological framework visit, visit Auschwitz. They are struck by the, the horror of it, and it becomes very real to them. And then they're forced to think, okay, now, do I have to, as a Christian, believe that these Jewish people went from Hitler's oven, awful as it was, but temporal, into an eternal oven operated by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Mm -hmm. And it just becomes—it just— it throws them immediately into a deep crisis of faith where their their conscience just says, if that's what I have to believe to be a Christian, I can't be a Christian anymore. Uh, I just, I will just, my conscience doesn't allow me. I have to morally rebel against that. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we have to do a whole lot, whole lot better job on this topic of hell with people because it's, it's an atheist factory or it's a, done Christian factor. I mean, it turns Christians into, I'm done, if that's what I have to Right, believe. yeah, because, yeah, you know, the atheist, the atheist can say, well, your God is not good. Your God creates a world that is full of all these evils, and then your God has a hell that lasts eternally, and so there's yeah. no way that your God is good. So, so, look, if, if, I don't think there's any really where you're going to settle this debate, if that's what it is, if all you do is try to proof text. Uh -huh. If you have, you know, versus wars, my verses versus your verses. <laughs> and, you know, the universalists have a, have a great stable of verses that they can fire. Uh, but, you know, the infernalists at least have verses that in their understanding of it, seem to indicate that souls are eternally lost, either through annihilation or possibly through eternal punishment. I mean, you can find those verses. So I don't know that 
the Bible as bits of verses that we use to make our point and take our stand on that verse instead of the other verse mm-hmm. is any way forward. I think, though, as we just think Christianly about the God who is revealed in Christ, we ask this question. Does I mean we'll do let's let's take it from the vantage point of let, let's assume that what you know uh, reform what, what neo Calvinists would claim or Calvin himself was just a Calvin. Uh, let's just let's just take their lens of how they look at the whole big picture. Mm-hmm. And say, okay, so God creates. And he creates beings in his image, beings that are by nature eternal, knowing full well that the vast majority of them will end up in a state of eternal torture. Mm-hmm. Hey, is that good? Is that is that <laughs> To use a non-theological term, is that winning? <laughs> it seems right. to me like God pretty much loses. Well, you know, then, he, he, yeah, he, he's, not, he's, you know, it's they'll like... They'll end up there, and then they won't even... And they will have never even have had a chance to make a response because they weren't capable of it, which makes yeah. it sort of even worse. And of course, yeah, right. All of all of that I have long since... If I, I was never a Calvinist, that's, that's for sure. I was never a Calvinist. Um, I think I think one of the critical issues among a certain breed of Protestant, there is a reflexive assumption and an uh, inflexible <laughs> reflexive assumption that the moment of death is the end of the story. Mm-hmm. That yeah. that the, everything ends at that moment. And there is where I would say, I think there's precious little scripture to support that. You know, someone will fling at me, you know, Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed that each man die once, and after this, the judgment. I said, but of course, then what? <laughs> right, yeah, what is then the judgment? What? Okay, and, yeah. and so uh, I say it like this. And I, this is what I say regularly. I say it from the pulpit. I say it often. I say that Christ descended down into death that he might fill all things from Sheol to heaven with himself. Okay, He that ascended far above all things is the one that also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he conquers death. You know, the old Orthodox hymn, Christ right. has risen from the dead. And you're quoting you're qu- by you know, death and dis- upon those in the tombs bestowing life. For those who may not know, you're quoting scripture right now about descending to death. Yeah, right. Exactly. Of course I am. And um, so I say it like this. For a human being to die is not to encounter death, for death has been conquered and death has been filled by the one who fills all things everywhere with himself. That's Ephesians 1.21 and Ephesians 4. 10, I believe. That phrase is used twice, that he fills all things ever with himself. So for a human being to die is not to encounter death. From our perspective, we see, okay, bodily function is ceased and all that, and so there's a burial and decay, but that's not the end of their story. For a human being to encounter death is not to encounter death, but to encounter Christ. 
as both judge and savior. Now, I don't I don't put any kind of fine detail on what that all looks like. I are we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We are all accountable to Christ. In some way or another, his life judges ours. And we have to face who we are, what we've become, what we've done with our life, good and bad, all of that, judged. And then I would say, then the process of restoration, reclamation, salvation begins. I say process. I have no reason to believe that everyone is immediately, you know, granted the beatific vision or, mm-hmm. or, or I, I don't know what that process looks like. But I think there is a process. I think so. I think so. Now, again, I, I might say a purgative process. I might say we, we fall into the consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire, but what's being consumed? Right. And, and what is that which is, cannot be consumed? What is it that which is refined? Um, I, I could use the word purgative. I like that word. But then, it's, but then understand that that... That's you know we get that that's a derivative that's how we get purgatory right which which I don't I don't oppose in principle but it has a history and of course you know at one point you know medieval Catholicism had it all figured out exactly right. you know who's in purgatory for how long and how, how many vacation days you can get <laughs> literally I'm not making these up depending <laughs> on what kind of indulgences have been purchased for you by your you know grieving right. family. So, so I understand that a lot of people are going to be allergic to that because that's the version of it they think. Right. Uh, I simply say, and I say this in "Sinners in the Hands of Loving God." I never, I, I simply do not believe that someone calls upon the mercy of God out of a sincere and repentant heart and is ever refused. I, I just the 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 chick track notion of God. Uh, hearing someone cry in brokenhearted humility for the mercy of God, and God sort of looks at his watch and says, "Sorry, too late, pal." <laughs> yeah. I, I just I don't accept that. Now, on the other hand, I don't make assumptions about what it takes for a person to arrive at the moment where, out of sincere humility, they can repent and turn to God and ask for mercy. I don't know how long that process is or what it entails, or what it looks like. And I would also say, because I'm, I'm, I am I'm, hold a radical uh, view of the reality of free will. So I would say, I mean, I mean I'm just not a monergist. I'm just, I just can't believe that, that um, if, if, human, if we don't have free will, then we're all just a movie playing in God's head, and we might as well quit talking about this and go listen to some Dylan or do something, you know, I don't know, but we wouldn't even have that choice anyway. So, um, so at any given moment, I think I can say no to God. No, no. At any given moment, I can resist Mm -hmm. the redemptive love of God. The question then becomes, and I think it's an open question. Uh, which is more likely to endure the longest? 
Yeah, human what I like a, rebellion I like. or the love of God. What I like. Actually, uh, I think. Uh, I mean, theoretically, both can hold out in opposition forever. But can humans resist the love of God eternally? That I like what von Balthasar said that, that the greater the area becomes that grace thus occupies in an illegitimate way. Yeah, the more improbable it becomes that the soul will remain close to it. And he highlights illegitimate. In other words, God's pretty sneaky. Yeah. That grace, grace has a way, grace is kind of like water. It has a way of seeping in and moving around and it, it advances um, in, in, in ways we might not even want it to illegitimately. Yeah. You know, it keeps, you know, it keeps sneaking in. I want to talk uh, the sinners in the hands of a loving God. This is a this is a, a, a rephrasing of the famous uh, sermon by uh, Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And yeah. man, you have more of a history with that sermon than anybody I've ever heard of in your book. That's one of the fun. That's one of the most fun things about reading reading your book is your whole journey with that sermon and. And you actually had a, your own hand-done photocopied yeah, edition. If I had it up, I would have brought it and shown it to you. But yeah, I still <laughs> have it. Yeah, what I did was I was, uh, you know, I'm just a Jesus movement guy that, I, when I say I started my church, I didn't really ever, I mean, we have an official date, and that's November 1st, 1981. So it'll be 40 years this November. That, all that date was, though, was the first day we started meeting on Sundays. We had already been meeting as a Christian coffee house in the Jesus Movement era called the Catacombs. And it, it just sort of turned into a church. So I can't even say I planted a church. It just, it just happened. And this is I happening in Missouri. Pardon Where me? are you now? You're in Missouri. St. Joseph, Missouri. I've been here all my life. St. Joseph, Missouri. Yeah, just north of Kansas City. And so, I mean, quite literally, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult because I was leading this ministry by the time I was 17. And then I officially became a pastor at 22. So, you know, and at that time I was, I was enthralled by the revivalists. So, you know, George Whitfield, John Wesley, later like Charles Finney, uh, but then one of those would be Jonathan Edwards. And so I thought, well, I, I want to see. And it was, you know, it's, you can do bad theology from good faith, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I was never trying to be spiritually abusive to anybody. I just, you know, I wanted to serve the Lord and bring as many people to Jesus as I could. And I knew the stories of these great revivalists. And I thought, well, maybe they know something. Mm -hmm. And so one of them was Jonathan Edwards. And so he has this very famous sermon they preached in 1741 that is connected with the Great Awakening in America. And so I took, I had, a, I had a, a larger copy of the collected sermons of Jonathan Edwards, and I took it from that and then made a little, its own little booklet, mm -hmm. a little, little book with a card, a blue cardstock cover, and then these photocopied pages that I had mm -hmm. put together, you know, figure it all out and cut them all up. And you know, this is back when cut and paste was done with scissors and glue. It's a long <laughs> time ago, folks. And on the cover, I'd written in, in a heavy black marker, 
sinners in the hands of, uh, and then in capital letters, angry God. And then I I'd highlighted parts of it in, in a pink, a garish pink highlighter, and I memorized parts of them. I don't know if they, I don't have them all still memorized. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look up a bit of it here, um, and, and I would use it in my evangelism by terrorism. So you you threaten people with eternal torture, and you get you just you get them terrified, and then then you it's kind of a good cop bad cop routine. God the Father is the bad cop, and then we bring the Son in as the good cop. But here's here's the most famous passage. Okay. And in sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's known as the spider passage. And, and right. before I go one step further, I do want to say this. This is not necessarily indicative of all of Edwards' theology or sermons. But it's, you know, it, it, it is the truth that probably no other sermon has more formed the American religious imagination than this one. And so there you have it. Edwards, in his sermon, says... The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to have to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most Hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Now, wait, one, one more. Just bear with me. I know this is terrible. Just bear with me. Uh, that wasn't my favorite passage, though. My favorite one was this one. I mean, listen how threatening this is. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment. But you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And when you have done so, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that it is all but a point to what remains. My God. <laughs> and that's when, that's when you know, bow your head. And if you would like to be saved from that, raise your hand. I mean, okay. It's like... What I got to lose? The question isn't whether or not, though, this might be effective in convincing some people to somehow align their life with Jesus Christ. The question is, is it true? And the problem with bringing people into the faith through this means is that they still are going to suffer the spiritual PTSD from what has been afflicted on them as presenting God as violent, angry, retributive. I mean, it has that line in there, this almighty, merciless vengeance. So, I mean, one of the, one of the problems with just an eternal, eternal conscious torment is the term that we use, you know, right. eternal conscious. One, one of the many problems with that is you have an infinite punishment for a finite crime. How, how can that be just? 
Well, I'm convinced that God has a single disposition towards all people at all times, and it is one of love. It is one of unconditional, unending love. But how we experience that depends on how we respond, to what degree we have aligned our lives and our will with love. So that I could make the case that hell, and that no one say I don't believe in hell. I mean, you just don't say that because you'll be wrong. I believe in hell in many different ways, but but one of the ways of understanding hell is that's the love of God wrongly received. And that fire, I'm using metaphorical language, but it's what we mm-hmm. have to do, that fire that is to provide heat and warmth and light when wrongly received becomes a source of at least some kind of, of uh, I don't know, whatever word you want to use, discomfort, pain, I mean, I think, first of all, I want to stress that whatever I believe, and again, I do hold to the robust hope that God is able to ultimately reconcile all things unto himself in Christ. But no one ever gets away with anything. Right. I mean, everything has to be addressed. Everything has to be faced. There's no cheap grace here. There's no, ah, you know, we're just going to let it slide. No, everything has to be acknowledged. And dealt with. And uh, this is Jesus' language about, you know, you don't get out until the last penny is paid. And then you have the famous, or at least I wish it was famous. I mean, what's famous is Sinners in the Hands of a loving, or an Angry God by, by uh, Jonathan Edwards. What I wish was famous is The Last Farthing by George MacDonald. That's the sermon I wish was famous. <laughs> and by the right. way, that sermon is available online for free. Just Google George MacDonald. The last farthing you can read it in twenty minutes or less. It's it's worth your time. Well, that, when I noticed, you know, you so you get into the Sermon on the Mount and you're so freaked out about the the, the standards of judgment, and you know, cast being cast into into hell, or mm-hmm. and then you find out. Well, the Greek term there is Gehenna, um, right. but anyway. And, but then Jesus makes that aside and he says, so if, you, if you've got something against, somebody has something against you and they're taking you to, they have to take you to court to get it said, you might want to settle it before you get before the judge. Because if you get before the judge, judge is going to hand you over to the jailer. You're not going to get out until you pay the last penny. And so if you do get I, out. <laughs> yeah. But once I looked at that, it was like, oh, okay. What Jesus is saying is, yeah, there's consequence. There's consequence. Work, work everything out you can right now. If you have to, if you have to work it out on the other side, however that works out, uh, that you know it, it's going to be harder. It's going to be better for you to work it out now, is yeah. what I hear Jesus saying. Yeah, but not that it can't be worked out, but it might take an awful long time on the other side. It might, and you won't get out until you pay time. the last penny. I, I think, yes, what we can address now, we really should. It's, it's advantageous to us before we end up before the judge, as Jesus teaches us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you on that. Um, so, see, th- this is my problem with, with just using the, f- the phrase universalism, because for those that haven't read or bothered to learn, those that have only... I mean, hear it in its most egregious pop form, which maybe no one actually even holds to, but they think that other people think there's no accountability, that there's no, that that sin is never faced. Right. And and thus, there are no consequences, so it doesn't matter how you live. 
So it's like, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You, you, you go out and be selfish, self-centered, be a libertine, take advantage of people. It doesn't matter because at the moment of death, everything is fine. You're just in heaven. You know, no, no, <laughs> no one, no one that really thinks about apocatastasis or universal recon- reconciliation thinks anything like that. Not right. Yeah, the early church, the early church fathers were, you know, were pretty scary at the links when they described, even if they thought there would be universal restoration, the ages of purification that right. they described, which might be necessary for really recalcitrant souls, you know, was pretty, pretty darn scary. I mean, you wouldn't want to be involved in what Gregory of Nyssa said was going to happen to you if you, you know, if you left, if you left this earth raging against God, yeah. even though he believed you'd ultimately be restored, he was ready for ages upon ages of correction. Yeah, so the other day, someone who was angry with me over my doctrine <laughs> says, you're going to hell. I said, yeah, probably for a while. <laughs> well, yeah, if you think about it that way. Well, and the idea that Jesus said at one point that everyone will be salted with fire. But in salt is good. And that, that salt is good. Yeah. Yeah, so there is something, and that God is a consuming fire. And uh, let, let's, in your book, you cover so much ground in your book. But chapter six is where you really get into um, into talking about hell, and we've used that word hell, uh, and that's, that's problematic, right? Yeah. So just tell a little bit about the English word hell and and the yeah. problems. So so this English word, which is actually derived from a well, it's a Scandinavian word. But this, in English, H-E-L-L, the problem is, it has picked up so much baggage over the centuries, and it's forced to carry so much freight that what happens is, when we see that word in the text of an English Bible in Old or New Testament, we unknowingly, unwittingly read into the text things that may not at all have been intended by whatever the original word was, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, Tartarus, uh, whatever else I left off, um, for everything from, you know, Senators in the Hands of an Angry God to Dante to a chick track to, you know, the Assembly of God Hell House on Halloween. Uh, mm-hmm. All of that gets read into the text. That's why most modern English translations don't even use the word. They tend to just translate it either Gehenna or as as Hart does very create the the Vale of Hinnom, which the is vale actually, of the yeah. Vale. It's, yeah, it's a reference to this valley south of the city of Jerusalem, which was where there was Molech worship in times in ancient times past. This is this fiery god with the head of an ox that parents offered children to, that then later becomes the garbage dump, you know, and thus. Where the where the fires are never quenched because they're always burning the garbage and the maggots never die because it's it's a garbage dump, and then the warning from Jeremiah is if you guys continue on the course you're on, the whole city is going to be pulled down into Gehenna, which is what happened in 587 BC with the destruction of Jerusalem, and then Jesus borrows that language again, the language of Jeremiah, and is warning Jerusalem that if you continue in this assumption that you can have a violent revolution against Rome and that God's going to come and fight on your side, you're going to pull the whole city down into the valley of Hinnom, 
which gets translated as hell, because it is hell. I'm telling you, what happened in 587, what happened in AD 70 in Jerusalem was hell. I mean, you whatever word you want to use is fine. But I'll tell you something, David. I go to Jerusalem a lot. I've been there, I don't know, 25 times. And uh, often when I go to Jerusalem, I go for a walk in hell. And I'll, I'll take some people with me. I say, you want to go to hell? What? <laughs> literal help. You know, people always say, do you believe in a literal hell? I say, I believe in a literal hell. I'm going to take you to a literal hell. And so I take him for a walk, because where we stay in Jerusalem is a 10-minute walk. And I take him out of our hotel, and I take him to uh, Gehenna, to the valley south of the old city, which Jeremiah and Jesus both talked about, where there used to right. be these fires of Molech, where there were the fires of the garbage dump, which was emblematic of the whole city on fire when the city was destroyed. And I say, well, welcome to hell. Now, hell today is a, is a lovely park <laughs> with fountains and uh, and occasionally a concert. And you, you see lovers walking hand in hand and sitting on park benches. It's just a thoroughly delightful place. It seems a whole lot more like heaven, but there was a time when it was hell. And that, that in itself is a sermon. But then there's a place when you first enter this park. I forgot the next name of the park in Hebrew. I can't, I can't pull it up right now. Um, <laughs> It's in Hebrew, but you know, it's, you know what, it, what it says, even if you don't know Hebrew, because of the, the symbol on it. And it says, no fires allowed. <laughs> <laughs> no fires allowed. So literally, lit, if you want to talk about lit, people say, well, literal. Okay, literally. The literal hell today has lots of fountains and it's a park, and it even has a sign at the entrance that says, no fires allowed. <laughs> That's funny, isn't that That's awesome? Funny. The violence now, the violence thing. Well, I, I, um, uh, oh, four, four or five years ago now, I spent a couple of years. I decided I would uh, take our congregation through the Sermon on the Mount at the slowest possible pace. So we spent a year and a half just in the Sermon on the Mount. I spent six months one time, and I thought that was slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so, but what what happened was. We just we just slow cooked in the Sermon on the Mount for about you know over, over a year, and as I did that, uh, what just kept coming through to me was how um, sensitive Jesus was to any the smallest amount of violence. Yeah. You know, he didn't want you, you know no violent language towards other persons, no violent thoughts towards other persons. There's one line in the Sermon on the Mount, and I had to I had to read it several times because I couldn't believe it was actually there. It said, do not resist the evil person. That's what it says. I mean, and I just, and the assumption in that line would be, do not violently resist the violently evil person. Yeah. But, well, you know, and so he here he is. So here Jesus is in this in this super oppressive regime, um, and and. He's yes, warning. He's not he's warning. in a position of privilege. He belonged to an occupied people that were brutally right. oppressed by the most powerful military in the world. So yeah. yeah so so here he is. But it, one of the things that he would and this this confused me for a long time, where he kept warning people about this sinful and adulterous generation, and I kept wondering what was it was so sinful and adulterous about them. And it be, as I started looking at it more and more, the problem was evil. The problem was the evil of violence. And that yeah. they had, in subtle ways, had become more and more violent towards each other, 
and that this violence was building and it was beginning to be expressed against Rome and that what was going to happen was it was ultimately going to lead all of them into the end. And 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 Jesus said, when the end comes, when this happens, when the armies surround Jerusalem, go for the hills, don't run into Jerusalem. Yeah. And so once I started understanding all that, then all of the judgment background, the judgment language of Jesus and all of his talk about Gehenna and all of his warnings and his counter message about the kingdom of God now being present and, and able to exist right in the middle of all of this all started making more sense to me. And that became yeah, a much stronger understanding of the good news. Of the siege of Jerusalem. I mean, if you want, if you want to read something that, that will just horrify you, and give yeah. you a vision of a literal hell. Read about the siege of Jerusalem under General By Josephus. Titus, where, where those that knew the warning of Jesus and heeded it, they did. They, they got out of the city. They, they fled. Many of the, the, the Jesus movement fled to the city of Pella in Jordan. Uh, but most did the opposite. They saw the advancing Roman armies and thought they would find safety in the walled city of Jerusalem, and the population swelled, and there was disease broke out, there's famine, there was factions fighting one another within the city, Jewish factions fighting each other, there were criminal gangs, people then began to try to escape, uh, and everyone that tried to escape then was captured, was crucified, until they literally ran out of trees. The Romans had cut down all of the trees to crucify so many people. And then people were trying to get out and they were swallowing coins that they would hopefully they could escape. And, and then, you know, it would run through their system. And the, Jeru- the, the Roman soldiers discovered that. And so they disemboweled everybody they found looking for. I mean, it was horrible. And so Jesus was warning them, warning them, if you think you can rise up in violence against Rome, and that God is going to take your side and fight for you, you are on a path that will lead to hell. And it did, literally. So when Jesus says in Luke 13, he says, you know, yeah, I know, Pilate uh, killed some people and, and mingled their blood with their sacrifices, as it were, and the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed 18 people. But look, do you think they were worse sinners? I'm telling you, no. But unless you repent of this course you're on, you're all going to die in the same way. Meaning that Jesus isn't talking about a post-mortem thing. He's saying if you continue on the trajectory of the myth of divine violence fighting on your behalf that you're on, you're all going to die by Roman swords and collapsing buildings. And that's what happened, you know, when the hundred pound hailstones hit them. You know, that's, that's a reference to the Jew, to the Roman catapult stones the hundred pound hailstones falling upon the city. And so, uh, yeah, this theme of Christ, who is the perfect revelation of God, calling us away from violence is actually a theme that you can see through the Bible once you discern it, once you see it. You right. See, okay. There's, now it's progressive. We, we have to get there. But finally we realize that reliance upon violence always leads to, to hell. And Christ offers us another way. Well, that, that's why that's why what you stress is so important about Jesus as the ultimate revelation of God. I, I like to say Jesus is the ultimate hermeneutic. Jesus yeah. is 
that's how we see God, because the Bible does have this progression in it. And so if you just go through the Bible picking out different places, you can justify violence in lots of different ways. But if you say, but, but, but keeping Jesus central uh, to the revelation of God, to the, to, the, to the God of love is just so crucial. Uh, you just do a good, really good job about talking about that in the book. Thank you, David. Um, there's a, you mentioned also in the book, um, the parable of the sheep and the goats and then the narrow gate and the hard road. Could you just say a little bit about the sheep and the goats and the, that, that narrow path and the wide path that leads to destruction? Well, you know, when, when people want to have a quote and they don't really know what they're talking about, but when they use the language, they want to believe in a literal hell. Uh-huh. And and they start going for the passages that seem to support that. They almost always end up with the Gospels and the words of Jesus. And we have to understand what kind of hell Jesus is talking about. But okay, but then you end up with the parable of sheep, sheep and the goats, which seems to have some afterlife implications, um, that there is some sort of great judgment. And... Uh, but and and you know the sheep on the right, or the father's kingdom, the goats on the left, into the fire of the age is how that should be translated. By the way, not eternal, but the fire of the age. Eon is not eternal; it's an age. But so anyway, you you do have you know the goats going into a fire, and people say there. I said, well, look, okay, fine, but what? But then again, if you're going to be consistent with the text, what is the basis of this judgment? I mean, the goats are, and the, the sheep are not people that pray to sinner's prayer. They're people that have acted in love toward the least of these, that have acted in love towards the poor, the sick, the imprisoned, and the immigrant. Those that treat those with kindness and love, Christ says, those are my brothers and sisters. And so the basis of that judgment is not based upon whether or not you said a prayer, but how you lived in love or not toward the other. So that has to be factored in. And the what was the other thing you asked about? The, you know, the narrow, the narrow. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think I'll just I'll just read that text. I'll try to quote it. Um Matthew chapter, it's at the, it's Jesus is coming in for a landing <laughs> with his <laughs> sermon on the mount. He's he's about done. He's coming to the end of it here, and uh, Jesus says, uh, "In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the summation of the law." In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. We call it the golden rule. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. And so I I think we've had this big separation between the golden rule and the, the narrow way. But Jesus puts them right there together, that the easiest way to go through life is to identify with some sort of tribal identity. And so, you know, I, I want goodness for my tribe, for my people, for my group, but I, I, I wish nothing but harm and evil and destruction upon those that are without that. Well, that's mm-hmm. violating the golden rule, and it doesn't lead to the narrow way. It leads to the broad way that seems right. It seems right. Okay, hate your enemies, kill your enemies, nuke your enemies, 
bring wrath upon your enemies. But Jesus says not. That is the broad way that in the end, it always leads to destruction. So the, the narrow way is the way of love, of co-suffering love. It's what Jesus Christ calls us into. It's what we see in the parable of the sheep and the goats. I mean, clearly, I mean, I believe in, in conversion. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in receiving Christ. I believe in, 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 uh, in, in following him. But I'm telling you, the judgment in Matthew 25 of the sheep and goats is not based upon some sort of faith in the form of mental assent, but rather it's based in the way that you treat the other. Mm -hmm. Well, you you do a good job uh, going through those texts in, in your sixth chapter on on hell, and then you all but you spend three chapters on the on the book of Revelation. Yeah, and that is really interesting. And 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 to me, once you really start studying all this stuff, at first you think, okay, the book of Revelation is is sort of the final trump card for the for the eternal torment yeah. camp. So, yeah. Well. And we got the book of Revelation because the Bible ends with the book of Revelation where it says there is the there's going to be the great white throne judgment and some are going to go into the lake of fire. And then and then there's going to be the new Jerusalem. And that's where the, you know, the bride that, you know, and the Christ and the and the and and then it's and it's all done. But the book of Revelation has so much history and it has so many different images in it. And it even ends up with an image of a Jerusalem with its gates always open. And anyway, just the gates are always open and outside the gates. This is the imagery. There is a lake of fire. And from within the city, the spirit and the bride say, come, are you thirsty? Come. Well, who are they announcing this to? To those outside the city. <laughs> are you thirsty? Uh, I'm in a lake of fire. <laughs> well, then come on. But you're, you're, you're going to have to address things. You have to wash your robe in the blood of the Lamb, but the gates are open. If you're thirsty, come on. Well, the one thing to say about the book of Revelation, and this needs to be made crystal clear, that every image in the text is symbolic. You don't get to mix and match and pick and choose and say, okay, a beast coming up out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns, sort of a Godzilla situation. Uh, okay, I think that's symbolic. Uh, but Jesus on a flying white horse with a sword in his mouth that slays 200 million people? No, I think that's literal. No, no, they, they, it's all symbolism. It's all symbolism. And the, the symbols are complex. Many of them, maybe even most of them, can be discerned. Some of them may be at this point beyond our ability to really understand what is intended by John the Revelator there. But, I mean, as far as the great climactic battle, you have the Word of God coming on a flying white horse with a sword not in his hand. That's the way of the world. That's the way of all the generals of this world. That's the way of all the dudes on all their horses with a sword in hand. Uh, no, he has a sword in his mouth, and he's the word of God that's faithful and true and prevails over what would have been thought of as the population of the world at that time. And I would just say it this way. I believe I'm one that has been slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of Christ, who is the word of God, and then raised to newness of life and invited to participate with him in the new Jerusalem that he is building. 
And so I, I think the book of Revelation is a beautiful, marvelous uh picture of the ultimate triumph of Christ, but you have to understand the nature, the genre of the literature, of Jewish apocalyptic literature, which I was always mm-hmm. kind of pitting good against evil, and it always has sort of these uh, martial images. That's going to be the style and genre that it's in, but I think ultimately it actually subverts the idea of violence. So I, I, if, you're, if, you, if you want me just to be plain about it, I'll say, I don't think that in the end Jesus says, oh, screw the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to come back and kill a bunch of people. I mean, that, that is not the God revealed in Christ at the cross. And so if Revelation is a bit difficult to interpret, and guess what it is, uh, we begin with that which is the most clear. So we take the... We take the we don't have to make the Sermon on the Mount line up with a certain reading of Revelation. We have to make our reading of Revelation line up with what we clearly see in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, but we, it's not that we, hard to do. I mean, we are, maybe it's hard, but it can be done. Get my book. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> we, and I want, and I, I, want right people, and I want I want people to do that, and I'm glad for them to get to, <laughs> to hear your voice. I think of the last thing I'd like to hear you talk about, which you really are eloquent on— and, you know, you could think, you know, what is the what is the moment of what is the moment of revelation in the maybe in the New Testament? And some people might argue about different different points of it, but for you, it's really clear that it's Jesus on the cross yeah. praying, "Father, forgive them." Well, the, the Bible is an enormous book. I don't know if you've noticed that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, the one I've got sitting right here is uh, over twelve hundred pages. That's fairly small type. And it covers. It's written over a vast amount of time, and it's it's as as people have rightly pointed out, it's not so much a book as it is a library. So you have to kind of decide where am I going to position myself in this vast landscape of mm-hmm. scripture, and say, okay, here is the point from which I will interpret all of the rest. You know, is it is it in the Levitical dietary code? Probably not. You know, is it, is it in the strangest verse you can find in the book of Revelation about these locusts that have hair like women and faces like men and the five months suffering that isn't, you know, that's probably not. So let's narrow it down. Well, I, I, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to go with the Second Testament, the New Testament, the Jesus Testament. And then I'm going to go from there, I'm going to go to the Gospels. And then from the Gospels, well, I'm going to go, what is what is the defining moment of Christ's life? It is the cross. I mean, his whole life is a journey toward that cross. And so I find myself in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Christ upon the cross, his arms outstretched in proffered embrace, praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I stand at that place in that moment, and then I look at all of the rest of Scripture from that light. And I think everything has to somehow be interpreted by that. That's, that's if you want to use theological language, that's my central hermeneutic moment. That's mm-hmm. my central hermeneutic text right there. And... Um, I just I think Christ upon the cross is how we interpret Scripture. I mean, well, it would be you know when I I told you I spent all that time in the Sermon on the Mount, and I began to you know I began to think that you know the cross would look a lot different if Jesus was up on the cross and at the, and he was you know shouting, 
curses down yeah. at people and saying, you know, when I get down after I die and I come back, I'm going to come and I'm going to get you and you're going to wish you'd never seen me before. Yeah, but or avenge my blood as Matthias, the, the, the father of Judah Maccabeus, cried out. And then, and then, and then you have Judah the hammer. That's what Maccabee means. Judah the hammer comes in and has at least temporary victories against Rome's oppressors. Or it wasn't Roman oppressors, it was Seleucid oppressors. Um, and then he actually paved the way for Rome to enter into Judea. But Judah Maccabee then becomes the uh, prototype for the idea of what Messiah will look like. And part of the problem Jesus has is Jesus never takes up the hammer. He never right. takes up the sword. And he's, he's not going to go that way. And what we need to understand about the cross, though, is it, in fact, is the, wor it is the coronation of the world's true king. His, his acclaim is by insult. His procession is to carry his cross through town. His scepter is a reed. His crown is made of thorns. And the cross is the throne itself. Um, that is, in fact, the true enthronement of the world's true king. And Christ always reigns from the cross. And so we, we never get to throw away the cross. We never get to say, okay, we're done with that. Now we can once again take up the sword. No, the cross eternally subverts the sword. And there is another way of being human. That at, at Golgotha, Jesus Christ does nothing less than to refound the world. Instead of being organized as it has always been from Cain onward around an axis of power enforced by violence, Jesus refounds the world around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. Well, that is, that is beautifully put. And uh, I just love your voice. I love, I mean, really enjoying uh, hearing you. Uh, I love your writing. I love your story. I mean, it, there's just so much to really enjoy about you, and I think you're you're a voice that a lot of people can hear. Like I said at the beginning, some people will say, well, I just don't like that Christian universalism. I don't like that word, and it, it implies some things I'm uncomfortable with. And I, at this point, I'm inclined not to argue with them. I say, you know what? I like it. It works for me. But if, <laughs> if, if you're a little uncomfortable with it, man, check out my friend, our friend, Brian Zond. He's a trip, and he does great theology. You've you've written some wonderful books, and you know what? You just seem happy. I I, I think I am. <laughs> you know, I think I think one of the outstanding characteristics of the early church was their outrageous, almost absurd joy. And I, I think that to be, I mean, it's, you know, anybody can be cynical and mad and angry and complain about all the problems in the world. I think it's, it's deeply subversive in the most Christian way to find a way to have joy in the midst of it all because we believe that Jesus is alive. Well, you are a very joyful person. You've got a wonderful theology. I'm happy to recommend it to people. And uh, I just wish you well, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk again uh, sometime in the future. But in the meantime, God bless you. And in your ministry and your work and your work. Thank you, David. It's been a joy. All right. Hopefully talk to you later. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, 
or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.